My name is Will Fitzgerald, and this is the Galway Film Podcast. Just a heads up that today's episode features some colourful language, in case you're listening in the vicinity of any immature ears. In his defence, it's spoken by one of the most eloquent actors who's ever lived, so it sounds really classy nonetheless. Some news before we get started. We're taking a Christmas break. This episode will be the last of 2018, but we'll be back on January 11th with the last couple of episodes of our first season, before all of us here at the Film Flaw become subsumed with the task of planning our 2019 festival. We'll have some things to announce about the 2019 Film Flaw when we come back in January, but for now, let me wish all of you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you for listening, for subscribing, for all of your feedback so far. And our inbox is still open if you want to share your thoughts, your requests, or follow-up questions to any of our episodes during the holidays. You can reach us at info at or on Twitter at GoiFilm. Because Christmas always gets me in a nostalgic mood, I thought we would see out the year with an episode from our archive. This episode is airing on the 14th of December, marking five years to the day since we lost one of the greatest Irishmen who ever lived, the irreplaceable Peter O'Toole. Peter O'Toole visited the film FLA in 2008 on the occasion of our 20th year. The following interview was recorded by RTE with presenter John Kelly in front of a live audience in Galway's Town Hall Theatre. So sit back, relax, and raise a glass, or your morning coffee, to a legend of stage and screen. Peter O'Toole. May I uh, preface the uh, interrogation? with a couple of words. Um, a few weeks back, I, uh, I saw a cartoon in a newspaper which made me chuckle. It was a group of oldies, old men and women, protesting in a protest march. And the first oldie had a, a, a banner, a placard, and on it it said, What are we doing? <laughs> and the second one said, Why are we here? <laughs> and the third one said, what will we say? <laughs> so I'm, I'm similarly afflicted in, in certain <laughs> respects. Uh, I've been trying to um, find a pattern to the, the uh, subtractions in my memory. And they are names and titles, as indeed they are for many of us. I'm afraid names and titles have gone. Uh, proper nouns, they've gone. Uh, uh, I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to them. They're not in alphabetical order, and a dozen of them whizzing round the head, and they don't come to mind. They're not a category. So do forgive me. I shan't remember one name, and I shan't remember one title. John. Thank you, and good night. <laughs> Normally that would worry me, but I was fortunate enough to meet Peter last night, and uh, there's a lot to be said and a huge amount to be said. And first of all, Peter, this, this, is, this is home ground for you. You're a Galway Well, I lived in West Galway for 20 years, and I've known it since I was a boy. And I've been coming and going for the better part of, what, three quarters of a century. So, yes, yes, and I did love living here. Domestic circumstances changed, and I had to move myself to London, but that's beside the point. And we come regularly. My daughter lives here. She was reared here, Kate. Tell me a little about your dad, Peter. 
Dad was my father was a racetrack bookie, uh, Captain Pat O'Toole. The only captaincy he ever had was of a minor soccer side, but bottom. <laughs> he uh, earned a living in the northern racetracks of England. And uh, he met my mother, who was a Scots nurse with an Irish mum, when he was making a book at either Ap Epsom or Ascot, I forget which. He'd gone down to the, to the big lands for a change. And then they moved up, and he worked all the, the northern circuits. And uh, I was born and reared up there. And um, then came the beginning of the Second World War. And uh, I was seriously ill as a child, so I was, in, I was um, in, uh, in hospital for nearly a couple of years. And when I came out, the, the war had begun, so any trips to Ireland were gonna, had completely gone. So we completely severed the connection, Daddy and me, for, for, uh, for over six years. And then the moment the war had finished, we came across to Dublin, and we bought some eight-hour killed steak, and some nylon stockings, and uh, butter, and uh, biro pens. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, about Yorkshire. I think we all have this notion about Yorkshire. Um, cloth caps, coal mines, very pretty villages with the countryside just backing onto them, and, and a very civilised sort of a place. Get that feel about it. If there's any county in England that reflects Ireland, it is Yorkshire. It is a sporting nation. Uh, yes, it's got the image of the flat cap and the greyhound and the whippet, but don't believe any of that. It's a massive place, the broad acres of it. It's full of rugby players and soccer players and cricketers and hurling players. There are lots of Irish there. And greyhounds and horses and the betting and the gambling. All the ma major racetracks in England are all in the north of England. So it's very beautiful and it's full of crack. And uh, it was a good place to, to be reared. And it was, there was an artistic community there. And oh, well, yeah. And so on. <laughs> For kind. But, I mean, I, don't forget, I, was, I didn't come near the artistic world until I was in my late teens. No, I was a bookie's son. But you, you had a couple of possible jobs in that. You, you started out in journalism mm -hmm. and the Navy. Uh -huh. And both of them seemed to have agreed with you pretty well. Yeah, well, I loved being in, the, in a newspaper. I really did. Um, it was a kind of education for me. It was an education. And uh, I, I worked for the, um, the, uh, the Conservative Newspapers Association, and they were, they were great, serious old journalists who admired their craft and knew their craft. And we were brought up on people like Stead and Montague and how facts were precious. Anybody who was brought up in England during the war, there are great gaps in our education. Um, because all the young men and young women were in the forces and we were taught by people who came out of retirement. I was at um, a, a Catholic school in St. Anne's Cathedral School in, in Leeds, which was opened by the Liberator in 1830, by Daniel O'Connell. It was the um, first Catholic cathedral to be allowed after the what, Catholic emancipation yeah. in whatever it was. And uh, it had a strong, strong Irish tradition. And, uh, no, I forgot what I'm talking about. <laughs> At what point, then, you, you touched on this already, you'd done some journalism, and that obviously was oh, yes, ex the exercising your The bits that were capacity. missing, they sent me to, um, the, to a college of commerce to fill. I learned French and English and typing and things like that. And uh, then I was called up into the Navy for the Korean War. I didn't serve in Korea, happily. Um, but I did serve... Uh, 
I was with the third submarine flotilla for uh, 14 months, and then I was um, in fishery protection on the North Atlantic. Did you find it tough? I mean, it seems, it seems a long way from the place you ended up, Rada. You know, it seems to be tough men, you know, dangerous ports, tattoos, all of that. <laughs> You're giving me a cue for last night, aren't you? I am, yeah, <laughs> He said to me last night, we were tattooed, and I said, I woke up on a bed in Copenhagen, he began to laugh. <laughs> um, I've been taken by a load of sailors into a tattoo parlor and stuck on one of those things. And it was literally, I just woke up in time before the needle went in. And I know, no, 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 because poor Sean Connery, to this day, has Scotland forever. <laughs> and underneath that, mother. <laughs> Well, James Bond. <laughs> so, Peter, can you recall the first impulse to be an actor then? Given that you had the journalism, you had the sailing behind you and all of that, why acting? What happened? Well, I began to get very interested in the theatre in about 19... When I joined the Navy and going all over the place and... and uh, Sailors are educated people. They love to read and they love to go to the cinema and they love to go to the theatre, which I found and was delighted by. And um, we used to go to, um, for the first time, I used to go to the pictures since I was a child. I love the pictures. But to start going to the Curzon Cinema where they were showing you know, posh films, I saw, we saw a group of us um, from, came up from Portsmouth when I was about 19 about 51 or 52, you'll know more better than I. Rashomon. It's a film that was made by... Um, oh, here. I was going to say Kamikaze. No, no. <laughs> um, Kurosawa. Kurosawa, thank you. Uh, before he made Seven Samurai, and it was with Toshiro Mifune. There you go, I'm, I'm, I'm hot. <laughs> um, and... Uh, <laughs> And I loved it, and I loved, um, I loved the way Mifune acted. And then I saw The Seven Samurai, and um, that intrigued me. And um, I began to go to the theatre a bit. And then when I came out of the Navy, and I was back into the newspaper, I joined a, an amateur theatre group. And um, I'd done a little bit, and a man came up to me called, uh, a Turk called Awad, I am doing superb. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was put on the production of, here we go, uh, doesn't matter, a Russian. Chekhov? Not Chekhov, doesn't matter. Turgenev? Of, um, I can't, fa 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 Fathers, Fathers and Sons. A version of Fathers and Sons. And um, the leading man had fallen down a flight of stairs and broken his leg. And would I do it for a week? Well, I'd never done anything with her, and these were professionals. So I said, well, I could, I, what, what do I do? And um, he, he took me through it, and I, and I did it. And uh, who remembers Philip Stone? He was uh, Stanley Kubrick's favorite English actor. He was in all Stanley Kubrick's films. And Philip Stone watched it. And he came up to me and said, you can do it. I said, what? And it began from there. It, if I tell you the, 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 the way it went, you'd seem that was step by step had been planned and considered. 
None of it was planned or considered. All of it was a complete blunder and an accident. But after about a year, I finished up at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And that began it. There were a bunch of very impressive people there at the same time as you. Uh, Harris, um, Peter Finch. Uh, Finchie wasn't there, but he was around. There was yeah. Albert Finney, there was Alan Finney. Bates, there was Brian Pringle. Did you realise when you're in that company, those people, that you know you were a hot bunch of people, or were you just another crowd of students who didn't we quite realise? We just none of us knew what we were doing. It's just we, we, we weren't certain if we could or could or should. As it happened, Albert could do it. Finney, he did it. For Alan Bates, we were an exception. We didn't know we were, but we were. And um, I began to get a little more at ease, a bit more confident. Uh, I, I ended the first year and I was still in one piece, which was remarkable because we didn't, I mean, you can imagine what we were like. You were developing, obviously, an approach to the work and the acting, which I'd like to get into in a bit more detail in a few moments. But then suddenly along came this thing in 1962, Lawrence of Arabia, which surely must have sort of thrown your head in all sorts of directions. This was a completely new experience on every kind of level for you. Well, um, it, it was an adventure, above all. Um, and it took two years to make. And it was only supposed to take, what, five months? Five months, yeah. And the, I, so the adventure side of it, quite apart from the work, it must have been great just to be in those places. Oh, unbelievable. Come on, I was 28 years of age, full of it. And there we were in the Holy Land, and uh, with the Royal Road from Aqaba all the way to Iraq, where everything in history, well, open the Bible and read that, and open today's newspaper and read that. And it's the same thing. It's all going on, has been going on for millennia. And uh, to be where the Crusaders were, to be where the pilgrims were, to be eh, astonishing. And to be in the middle of the Arabian Desert, right in the damned middle of it. And uh, we would leave, we, Aqaba was, our, was where we went for a, a lie down, if you can imagine such a thing. And it, it's on this coast, so we'd get into, into the water up to there, be gorgeous, the first time we'd been cool. And uh, then we'd, we'd rest up for a couple of days in tents. And then we had a Dakota and a de Havilland Dove, two aeroplanes. And we'd take off. It all be wrecked in advance by David had wrecked a couple of years earlier with Johnny Box. David Lean, I'm talking of. And we'd land on a mud flat, pitch tents. The Dakota would bring the crew and the generator and the lights and the camera. We'd set up and we'd shoot till we were exhausted. Then everything back on the thing and fly back to Aqaba and try and recover. And we did that for. Um, I was out there for nine months, but we shot for five. For the first uh, three months, I spent um, learning to ride that wretched camel. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you are nine feet up in the air on the hump. This great big brute and they're on a wooden saddle wooden <laughs> and there's a big nail in the front that's to get you in the chest button. another one in the back that's to get you in the spine the idea is if you don't touch them you're riding properly well, you know, you... 
and um, uh, and they go and they think they're they think they're gazelles. Because <laughs> they, they do this awful plod, but when they want to go quicker, they start doing this. <laughs> and you're on the top, being ah. <laughs> But things, I mean, wonderful things happen. I'm, I am staying more or less to the point. It's about Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, the reason I was out there three months earlier was to be among the Bedouin, to learn to learn to ride the camel, to learn to wear the clothes, to learn all sorts of things, and to get to know these men who were never on the film except once. They were always round and looking and looking after me, looking after everybody. They were. King Hussein's own desert patrol, a magnificent man. Of course, King Hussein was a marvellous man. And uh, they adored Hussein, and he adored them. And none of you are bowing and scraping for them. They say, hello, baby, how are you? And put their arms around him. And I tell you, you've got an Egyptian missus, God help you. And they were great. And um, uh, in the film, there is a man called Aouda Abu Tai who's played magnificently by uh, Anthony Quinn. And uh, the real Abu Abutai did exist, of course, and his grandson, Kutaifan Abutai, taught me to ride. And he looked like the old man, hawky. I, I went to see the film about 15 years back, and I sat on the front row. Hadn't seen it forever. And... Um, there's a scene when T. Lawrence is learning to ride the camel and he falls off and uh, the Bedouin says to him, but tomorrow, good riding. And it cuts to the first real shot of the desert. This huge panorama, this multicolored, varicolored uh, shot. And in the middle, these two little figures galloping. Well, that's me and Katiphon, Abu Tai. The real thing, the two of us, galloping. And uh, I'd forgotten. And Katyphon was killed in 1965. He was charging against the Israelis on a, on a camel with a, a Lee Enfield rifle. I mean, they are fearless. And um, uh, I'd forgotten it completely. And there we were, and I'm afraid tears just shot horizontally out of my eyes. So the adventure continued and continued and continued and continued. Then when we'd finished doing all the desert work, or we thought we'd finished doing all the desert work, we went to Seville, which has a, a Moorish connection. So we could shoot Cairo and all the in, interiors, which we shot in Seville. Which meant that on Monday I was with Alec Guinness, on Tuesday I was with Claude Rains, on Wednesday I was with Jose Ferrer, then I was with Anthony Quayle, then Alec Guinness, then Arthur Kennedy, and... Where do, you, where do you go? I mean, the greatest actors in the world. And I had the opportunity to play good scenes with them. Did you know at the time, and did Ling know at the time, that you were making one hell of a film? Yeah. We yeah. all knew. Sounds arrogant and stupid, but we all knew. And was it, was it just the quality of the, of the people that were around you and the work? Or the quality of the people around us. We just knew we had a smell to it. Anybody else, it's a kind of intuition that it comes into the pause. Tell me a little, Peter, now, about your approach to acting. And you've, you've touched on this earlier. You've talked about things being better when, as you put it, we ran the business. 
when actors call the shots. Well, I joined the gang. I mean, the, uh, when Vanessa was young, when Siobhan was young, when Richard was young, when Harris was young, when I was young, when, when we were all young and beginning in the middle 50s and had been for millennia, it was um, the, the royalty of acting were the actors, the leading man, the leading woman. And the actors, we knew what we were doing, we knew what we, we, knew what we had to do, that's what we were paid for. And uh, a producer, a director, he was there to above all help, to assist us to put on a play. A prime minister to the royalty, as it were. So we could relax and get on with our job and he could see that we were lit properly and there was a good set and whatever. But now it's become where, where the directors and, and designers run the show. And you get in England, which is a graveyard. The theatre is a graveyard. Um, it's ghastly. And I watch these so-called, I mean, the Shakespeare industry alone is, is, is crucifying. Uh, not, I mean, the Shakespeare industry is massive. There isn't a twig in Warwickshire that doesn't have an academic behind it. <laughs> and, and everyone's doing the, the full text. I believe that of the 36 plays published in the first folio in, in the 1620s, that, that 10 of them are supreme masterpieces, and the other 26 you can have. Um, all right for the Galway boys to stick it on the, in the studio on a Sunday when nobody's looking. <laughs> and, uh, but and the, the whole point of doing Shakespeare, and has been since he was alive, was to, um, to have his parts played by the best. And what Stratford was, what the old Vic was, where I was brought up, was um, uh, where the best actors and actresses in the English-speaking world did the best plays in the English language. That was the, that was the ethos. And to get someone who was a first-class technician with tremendous sympathy to see he was surrounded properly by lights and sets and whatever. And to provide conditions in which actors can rehearse. And other buggers don't rehearse on a stage anymore. They, they sit in a room with the script. And none of them can talk. I watch these third-rate, biddable children shuffling around, playing Hamlet, wrapped in barbed wire with a, <laughs> a red dicky bow. That's to, that's to symbolize that he's guarded, because he's potty. You know. I just want to see bare boards and a passion. Tell me a little, Peter, about how you approach a part. Uh, first of all, accepting a part in the first place, deciding I want to do this, and then when you get a script. Now, it may be different, I know, for stage and for television and for the movies, but what do you do with the script? How long does it take you to, to study that script? How much time do you spend on it? How, what's, what's your process? Which of the 36 questions? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Let's, well, let's, let's take it in three first parts. First of all, then. there is no difference to me uh, on theatre or cinema or television. Not of kind. There's a difference of degree. I don't, uh, when I'm on a film stage, have to project to a thousand people. I don't. When I'm uh, in a theatre, I don't have to pretend I'm not... It's it, degree. Um, in terms of choice, 
Everything is the playwright. There are three indispensables in the theatre. Author, actor, audience. No audience, no art. That was Henry Irving's motto. And there's nothing ever truer. We are three, we're indivisible. Audience, actor, author. We're indivisible, we're a, we're a, we're a trinity. And the great magic and mystery of a playhouse is this connection between the author to the actor to the audience back the neural connection of brains and listen to you all now you're silent and listening this is remarkable this is a civilized experience I mean <laughs> to get a thousand people another thing I loathe about the present day is this presumption come on we've, if you expect people to come from, from, from Lettermore to Galway, give them a show. Above all, give them a show. And we're there for them. They're not there for us, we're there for them. My job is to entertain you. That's my job when I'm an actor. And by entertainment, that can mean anything from entertain, conjecture for a while. It's a big word. People love Lear. I love Lear. You can be entertained by Lear. I can be entertained by oh, Jimmy O'D. <laughs> How would you define an actor's job? It sounds like a stupid question, but I'd love to hear your answer to it. What does an actor? What does an actor do? Make words to? flesh. Make words flesh. And did you come to understand that at a certain point, or did you always know that? No, I never knew that. I knew it only slowly, slowly, slowly. The one thing that Hugh Miller drummed into me, and in fact anybody and anybody who's ever played a saxophone or played a game of hurling or rugby knows that if you want to excel, you work, you drudge, you slog. The most important thing for any actor is unobserved, uninhibited, private study without an interlocutor. And what do I mean by study? I mean that you... First of all, you read the play, and read the play over, this is the fun bit, this is the fun bit, you read the play over and over and over again, till you know what the play is about. You get a kind of picture, or a, a sense, because every play has its own style. Every play, any decent play. And then you absorb it. You, you narrow it down to your part. Now, everybody in this room, practically, I'm sure, I mean, in this theatre, has, has, uh, has learnt a poem or a prayer or something. But there's only one way to do it, and that's over and over and over again. So you study and study and study. You tease out meaning. You tease out sense from each line. And while you're teasing out meaning and sense and rhythm, because there's a musicality to, to, to Shaw, to Shakespeare, to O'Casey, to... There's a great musicality to the words. As exactly as a musician would pray over and over and over and over and over again to get one note particularly right, to get one grace note right, over and over and over again until you're completely... There's absolutely nothing between your, your tummy and your mouth. It just comes out. From the belly to the mouth, immediately. Um, and it's, it's, that's it. Um, and if you read any of the biographies of any of the great actors of the past, Edmund Keane, whose wife loathed him, but she, um, 
uh, uh, said uh, grudgingly that he worked harder than any man she'd ever known. Studying, Henry Irving would lock himself in a room. Alec Guinness used to lock himself in a room and he had different coloured pencils. And he would underline, whatever the colours meant, I have no idea, but he did. He underlined certain passages. Rafe Richardson, wonderful eccentric, he would practice uh, standing up in a garage with his play on a musical, what do you call them? And a violin. And hot gin. <laughs> and he'd be in there for three or four weeks until he had it. <laughs> Valentine Dial, who I knew, he, he used to say, well, when he was studying, he would say, well, is this a white wine part or is it a red wine part? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a few times you can afford to have a drop. And it's a lovely feeling once you've got it completely in and you're on top of it, that then you can have a jar. And it's not, it's not a question in any sense of remembering lines then. It's, it's no, in you. no. I think that's what people find hard to understand. They assume that you're up there all the time and say, how can he possibly remember all these words? But you're not remembering them. No, no, no. They're remembered. They're done. They're in there. Let me ask you about Venus. It's an extraordinary movie, I think. And uh, in particular, a part like that. Actors often talk about, you know, when they're in a movie or a play, it has a tremendous effect on their, on their own self. Now, you're in a film about a man who's falling apart, who's dying, uh, whose obituary is read in the film. Um, could, you, could you sort of dissociate yourself from the person in the film while you're watching that? That can't be easy. There is absolutely no connection between what I do on a stage and what I do off a stage. If I'm, if I'm playing a hangman, you don't have to worry. <laughs> No, I'll, I'll leave that to the amateurs. I, I, I know nothing about that. I really don't. No, no, no. Does that really drive you, drive you nuts? Because you do hear actors going on about these sorts of things all the time. You know, they, they, I just say, go away, learn your fucking <laughs> Some of the people you have worked with, and let me just fire a few names at you, and, 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 and I'd be curious to see what comes to mind. Audrey Hepburn. Ah, very sad. Sad woman. She was, she was unhappy. Her, her life, her domestic life wasn't very good, and um, uh, she was giving up the business. In fact, we did a play, uh, the last but one film that she did. She wanted to give it up. She'd had enough. And um, she was a most unhappy woman. Uh, so we, we made it a point. Eli Wallach was a fine old American pro, and me and, uh, and uh, Hugh Griffith and, and Charlie Boy. We made a point, let's cheer Audrey up. And by, the, and we had, um, by, by about the third or fourth day, we had her in stitches. In fact, um, <laughs> I'll tell you a story about Audrey, if I may. We were shooting at night. And she didn't eat. She was always kept this figure, face. And it was cold. It was on the banks of the Seine. And the the, um, the cameraman came up to me and Willie Wyler, the then director, 
And he said, um, orgies turn blue. <laughs> ah, so I took her into the caravan and I gave her a brandy and soda. Yeah, stick that down your Well, the blossoms came to her cheeks and the sparkle in her eye and she came tripping. We had to go into a car and drive off. I was sitting in the car. She came tripping down the flight of stairs, jumped into the car, switched on the English and we shot. <laughs> and we hit one of those huge brutes, you know, those lamps. <laughs> and I told her the story of Edmund Keane, who went on stage a bit drunk one day. And uh, the audience was saying, you're boo, you're drunk. And Edmund Keane said, if you think I'm drunk, wait till you see the Duke of Buckingham. <laughs> And the Duke of Buckingham is hanging onto a flat. <laughs> and uh, Audrey gave me a present at the end of uh, Milton, Milton's Paradise Thingy Bob. And, um, and uh, she signed it the Duke of Buckingham. <laughs> Another couple of names Richard Burton. Good friend. Great inspiration to me. Outrageous man. Seamus, he used to call me Seamus. <laughs> She's ruined me. <laughs> Sophia Loren. Ah. Mercy. I tell you, once I was, I was with Sophia at her sister's house one day, and I was sitting there with two children on my knee, and they were Mussolini's grandchildren. <laughs> yeah, she married Mussolini, her, her sister married Mussolini's son. I had Mussolini's two grandchildren. <laughs> We're getting no more. <laughs> Here's a subject, and I'm I only want to bring this up uh, in relation to the work itself. You may not know this, but you had a reputation uh, for a, a lifestyle and, and, and for enjoying a drink. And the reason I ask, I, I, I wonder, did it ever get in the way of your professional approach to the work? You're a very professional man. And I know I couldn't do what you did and turn up for work the next day, so how... How did that work? I've been drunk on stage twice. I've never been drunk in a film. Never. Oh, yes, I have once. <laughs> I had to be a drunk. <laughs> I had to get up from a table and go through a door in, in, um, in a, a, a film called... Oh, I can't remember. I was playing a German general, and um, uh, we filmed all night, and I had to get up, and I had a few drops, and I had to literally walk from, say nothing, from a table to a door. Once on stage, I, I, was, I, was, I had a soft voice, and Marie Keane gave me a brandy and port. She just gargled with that. Well, I did. And uh, I forgot to spit it out. And, uh, <laughs> 
I'm afraid by the fifth act I was not all that uh, uh, clever. Um, and then once, uh, the first time was a play called The Long and the Short and the Tall. And Ronald Fraser, God rest his soul, and me, we were, we'd been to a party given by Gary Cooper at the Savoy Hotel in, 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 in London. A lunch party. And uh, Ron said, uh, Pedro, it's, oh, blimey. And we left to get to the theatre and we hit, and we realised we were both drunk. What do you do? And, um, uh, coffee and all that, it doesn't do any harm, it doesn't do anything at all. But you drink. And we found that we were, I was doing not drunk acting, is, well, I could see that you, uh, you make sure that you are completely articulated. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, it gets we put 20 minutes on the first act. <laughs> was it as bad as people make out? The, the, the drinking, climbing buildings, all that sort of stuff. That wasn't fun. That was fun. I enjoyed climbing buildings. We used to do, we used to, we called buildering. We, a friend of mine called Oliver Patrick and I, we'd seen photographs of, of university students climbing steeples and they called it buildering so we used to go buildering if it was a steeple we'd climb it <laughs> there was um, a, a place on Ilkley Moor called the cow and the calf two, two stones in which people go up with those funny hats and cleats and boots and whatever we used to go up in our Sunday suits <laughs> yeah, I like climbing but, but, but while, while very drunk particularly while very drunk <laughs> You had a lot of fun when you were drinking. Clearly, it was it was fuel for your social life. I mean, you, you like this was going to open nights and so on. There, there would be nights when one just, one just get ruined, but the um, other nights it was literally a fuel. We go, where are we going now? We're going off to Punchestown. Where are we going? We go to Paris. Fun. Yes, it was a fuel. Kept going. Do, do you miss that? I don't miss it. I still have it. <laughs> The, the climbing's a bit slow, I think. It's a fantastic cathedral here, you know. You should have a go later. Um, in the time left to us, last night, and, and I noticed that when we were talking, it was about rugby, it was about cricket, it was about football, it was about boxing. You know, those, those are your passions. Mm -hmm. And I, I suppose I'm wondering, as, as one gets older... D does your passion for your job get any less? Not at all. None at all. My passion as a spectator of the sport, I used to play every sport that was going when I was a boy. Um, uh, as a spectator, I'll go anywhere. I've, I've great fun I had. I went down to Cardiff to see Munster beat um, whoever they beat for the Heineken Cup for the, for the second time. That was wonderful. And uh, to see that stadium, this vast stadium. And I'm not a Munster man, I'm a Connaught man, but um, uh, Harris was a, a Munster man. And he never saw them win a, 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 a European Cup. He saw them get to the semi-final. He wasn't allowed on Tuman Park, you know, Harris. <laughs> he wasn't allowed in. 
we were in we were in Twickenham together. We went into a gents' lavatory, and uh, Munster were playing somebody in the Heineken Cup. And uh, a man turned around from the stall and saw how he said, Ah, Jesus, he said, you're a jinx. <laughs> he wasn't let into the tomb until he had to slap in the car, in the car park with the radio on. <laughs> so poor old Harris had to die before Master could win. <laughs> but he sacrificed himself for a good cause. <laughs> they won the European Cup twice. And the appetite for the work still there? Oh yeah, yes. I don't do stage anymore. I mean, it's, 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 I had a lot of fun doing Jeffrey Bowdoin has done well. I had a lot of fun doing that, and um, I realised that never again would I get another a modern play, a brand new play by Keith Waterhouse, excellent playwright and novelist, with a part that required a lot of speaking and moving and dancing and jumping around. Never again will I have such a part in a modern play. At the old Vic, where it all began for me in 1953, and I realised that uh, it's the time to say bye-bye. And, um, oh, right, listen, if I get skinned tomorrow, I shall pack my props and go off and earn a few shillings, but um, not, not unless I have to. And in terms of the movies... I'd I love to do a movie, I love to do a television, as long as the part is decent. And how do you gauge that? What's, what's your criteria? Intuitive and subjective. Um, uh, Happily, with all my years in repertory, where we did classical plays, so we did plays that were, were successful, so we knew they were good. So I, I think I could recognize at least the impact of quality. I'd be very lucky. I mean, uh, I've done scripts by Terence Rattigan, I've done scripts by uh, Freddie Forsyth, by Robert Bolt. I, I've been very, very lucky indeed. There's one anecdote which you've told many times, and I don't care whether it's true or not, because it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Yourself and Finch in Dublin, and the barman wants to oh, kick you. Well, it wasn't Dublin, it was outside. It was on the way back to Bray, and it was a little hole in the wall. A little tiny, little, little hole in the wall, you know, with the... This is the long time ago, with the bottles of Guinness and the fly paper and the washing powder and everything else. And um, uh, we went in, and uh, the man said, now, now you boys, you've had enough. Out. You've had enough. Go home, go home. So we bought the pub. <laughs> And woke up in Finch's place the following morning. Finch, you know we did last night, mate. I said, "What? We bought the fucking pub." <laughs> so immediately onto the bank with Sir Ken, we went down to the bloke, and he hadn't taken the checks in. He hadn't. Now you boys are very foolish with your money too. <laughs> and it was great, and it became our place. And executives from Columbia Pictures would fly over from Hollywood and we'd take them to the hole in the wall. <laughs> the exclusive bar. Yeah. Kim Novak, I took there once. Peter, this, this is a, it's always a corny question, but is there advice that you would offer to people? I'm afraid I'm not much of a one for advice. I was never very good at accepting it, and I'm not certainly not really good at, <laughs> at dishing it out. Um, I know only this, this is all I know, is that those indifferent gods, they care one thing about us, and that's sweat.
Peter O'Toole. Thanks to Peter O'Toole, Miriam Allen, and all here at the Galway Corn Fly. Ensemble, Adrian Cunningham, research was by Claudia Lynham, and producer was Kevin Knight.